Please stand for the reading of the word from Genesis chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked upon, he looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, my Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham hastened to the, into the tent to Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it, and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, There, in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah left. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. I agree with Jeff. A powerful morning. Uh, it's good to be here together. Whether you're here with us in this room or you're online, I'm grateful for your presence. We have been engaging in something that has been very intentional for the past two years, whether you know it or not, which is a practice that we have been trying to push out over and over, throw seeds into our congregation to create a new culture, which is that the sermon, this moment that we experience on Sunday, should not end when we give the benediction, but rather we try to seed the story, the message, the Word of God into our lives throughout the week, whether that's a practice that you engage in or a, book, a booklet that you read or prayers that you offer or spiritual disciplines that you engage in. And in this series, one of the things we're trying to do to help you engage in this moment beyond the benediction is for you to go and share a reflective comment. It's really just a, a fill-in-the-blank. Answer this question for yourself. And you can do this in two different ways, depending uh, on how tech-savvy you are, but it's pretty easy, honestly. If, if I can do it, just about anybody can. You go to the top of your Facebook feed, and you find, you search for Highland Church of Christ, and there's a story there. And about three or four times each week for the next couple of weeks, we're going to have this opportunity where you click on that button, and it'll have a little prompt that you can fill in, and then you type it in, and it goes to the Highland Church, and we aggregate and curate those, and then we share some of those with everyone else. And so on one day, you fill out the sentence for yourself. On the next day, you can see some of our answers together. And, and last week, we saw a huge amount of participation in this. We're very grateful for this. The other thing you can do, now this is slightly more tech savvy, is you capture that blank, you fill it out, and you post it on your own newsfeed. And then your friends can see it, and they can comment. They can share. And all of a sudden, this spiritual discipline that we intend for you gets multiplied to people that I've never met, to people who may not know or understand God, but who may just be formed and shaped, just be given a, a, a nudge in the direction of what the kingdom is doing in their lives. 
I want to share with you some of the things that happened this week. If you can pull those up, please, Ty. We're going to move pretty quickly. One of the questions, one of the prompts was, I feel most seen, known, and heard when? The place where I feel most intimately known. And one of those answers is we can sit quietly together without needing to fill it with noise, talking when we like. That's when someone said that's where they feel most heard and seen. And, and the next one was just as powerful. When someone actively listens and does not invalidate my feelings and experiences. When someone just consumes and is, is available to receive what I have to say and doesn't try to shape it or correct it or, or do anything to it, just receives it. And then the next one, when people know what brings me delight, laughter, sadness, and closer to God. You know, the, the intimacy of being seen, known, and heard is just being understood. And when someone else understands you and, and, and knows what's going to bring you close or make you happy or make you sad, that's when you feel it's seen, known, and heard. Another prompt that we had this week was, when I blank, I encounter my inner child. When I stop for ice cream, literally anywhere, I encounter my inner child, said someone. And the next one was, uh, when I nurture curiosity, I encounter my inner child. Have you had that moment, that experience in your life where you, it just something happens and it takes you back to five years old and all of a sudden you have that kind of joy and energy and that, that openness in the world? Sometimes it's just watching a roly-poly, which I have a ton of in my house for some reason right now. Watching a roly-poly work its way across the floor. It just does something to me. It, it, it nurtures that inner child. What, what else is there? The last one is when I walk barefoot in the grass. Somehow the tactile sensation for someone in this church of, of walking through grass. I assume this isn't West Texas grass. I think we're talking about Kentucky here. But when someone walks through that grass, the smell of freshly cut grass, the sound of the wind blowing through the leaves, it does something. It nurtures that inner child. Uh, this week, we focus kind of on the stories around family. Next week, we're going to focus on the stories around what it means to be a friend. So I want to encourage you to engage in this spiritual discipline. And even if you don't want to share it, even if you don't want to put it out there on social media, I get that. Still fill in the blank and answer the question and see what happens when you take a little bit of time in your day. Just pause a little bit of time to reflect to become more self-aware, to think about what God's doing in your world. As Rob so wonderfully prayed today, um, we are in the middle of what feels like whiplash. You know, I, I thought back in May uh, when cases and June, when cases were plummeting and it looked like things were done and we were past uh, all of the concerns that we had about COVID, um, now we're in whiplash because it feels like it's coming back and I get how tiring that is. Um, we as a church, if you didn't notice in the signs or in emails, we, we want to encourage you to wear a mask when you're indoors. Uh, we want to encourage you to talk to a doctor about what's best for your health regarding vaccinations. Um, we would love for you to be thinking and praying, just as Rob led, that, that God will bring us through another hard time together. 
We're doing this series called Lost in Translation, and, and ultimately what we're talking about is, is some of the differences that exist between our culture and the culture in which Scripture was written in. Scripture was written in a context, and so there's meaning and there's, there's things that don't even need to be said because it's so obvious in your culture. You, you don't even have to mention it because everybody understands what I mean when I say that until you wait 2,000 years and you move from a collectivist culture to an individualist culture, and all of a sudden that stuff we need to examine or we're going to miss meaning in the text. And so we're thinking about what does it mean to be in an individualist culture, which, which America is, which Texas in particular is, which West Texas in particular and Texas is, from the collectivist culture of the ancient Near East or the first century church. Now, I, what I don't want you to hear, what I want you to be very careful of, I don't want you to hear what I'm saying is collectivist culture is better or individualist culture is better. It's, those are kind of neutral terms. Each one has their advantages and their disadvantages. I don't want you to hear, well, if we were just a little more collectivist than X, Y, and Z, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we have to acknowledge the differences between the two. One is not necessarily better than the other. And, and people that are doing cross-cultural ministry from individualist cultures, people that have become missionaries and traveled, say, uh, to Asia or to Africa, will tell you that in collectivist cultures, there are challenges that you're going to experience as you're trying to share gospel when you're working with people that have a different perspective. It's, it's very difficult in a collectivist culture for a person to convert to Christianity. Because you see, in, in my family system, my family system is very fragmented in a lot of ways. I've got a, a sister that lives in Colorado and a brother that lives in Tennessee. My, my mom lives in Colorado, but my mom and my dad, they move from Indiana. So I have family in Indiana, and some of that family is in northern Indiana by Chicago. Others is in rural, central uh, Indiana. And my cousins, I haven't seen most of them in like 25 years. I have a very fragmented social system, right? And so for me to make a decision about how I feel about something, I don't really call anybody and, and, and ask permission, right? Like if, if I want to stop rooting for the Broncos, I didn't have to call a family meeting and say, hey, guys, I think I'm done with the Broncos. And for me to choose to start rooting for another team, it costs me very little in my family system. Nobody cares. Good for you. Now, Choosing Christ is obviously a magnitude of more significance than choosing a sports team. But you can imagine in a collectivist culture how difficult it is for one person to say, I, I think Jesus is the way. I know that nobody else in my family system, in my society is going to believe, but I think Jesus is the way. It costs them tremendously. I have friends in, in Myanmar who are translating the Bible into some of the rural dialects that exist in that, uh, that nation. And they're also doing at the same time, planting a church in the city that they're in. And it is striking to them over and over and over how many of these young adults that come to Christ after hearing the stories of Jesus, hearing the wonderful mercy of what God has done in this world, get abandoned and rejected utterly and completely by their families. Completely. And that being cut off is not just like, well, my mom doesn't call me from Colorado very often. It is total abandonment. 
It's so much so that in the 19th century when uh, missionaries were first uh, going into Africa to begin uh, telling the gospel, they realized that kind of individual conversion as it was happening in America at the time where you'd have kind of a big tent meeting and then people's souls would be fired up and changed and some would choose Christ and, and some wouldn't, that that was not an effective missionological technique there. That did not work. What they did instead was they went to the chief of the tribe and spoke to the chief about what does it mean to follow Christ because everyone else's opinion did not matter until that person's opinion changed. Which is like, blows our mind. But what a challenge. It's not that individualism is better or collectivism is better. They're just different. But if we're not aware of the differences, then we're going to miss the nuance of the text. And I think that's what we're going to see today. Will you pray with me, please? Uh, Father God, uh, we invite you into this place and we invite you into our lives. Father, we pray that in this moment, as we, as we pause from all of the busyness, all of the anxiety, all of the things that we have going on in our mind and the checklist that we have to do and all of the things that need to get done today before we have to go back to work tomorrow, Father, we pray we put it on all in pause. And let us linger in your word. Father, fill our minds and our hearts with your spirit. And pour through me through the gift of preaching that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. So I want to tell you three stories before we jump into the text today. The first is, is about a Syrian refugee. As you remember, uh, the Syrian civil war that erupted several years ago kind of created a big dyspora of people trying to get away from that violence, people trying to save their families. And people would travel to Greece and try to get, get away by any means they can, sometimes getting on boats and rafts that were smaller than my car, and they're out on the open ocean. Well, one family made it to Greece, and as they were being processed there in the refugee center, they were asked about their possessions and their belongings, and they didn't have a lot of things. Now, if you had to flee your home, and you had about two hours to choose what was going to go with you, this happened in California in the wildfires two years ago. It happened last week as well in one small town there. If you had to choose what to take, what would you take with you? Most of us without a drop of the hat would say, man, I would grab identity documents for my kids, I would grab family photos, and I would be out the door because everything else is replaceable. The one thing that this family took, this fascinated me, the one thing that this family took was their family tree. It was a book of their ancestors. Now, I've met people that, like, get curious about their family tree, and they'll trace their ancestry back to the Mayflower, or they'll trace it back to somewhere in England, or they'll trace it back as far as they can. This family's family tree, this document that they held, was able to be traced back almost to Abraham, which is cool. But what we have to understand about that family in Syria is that book just wasn't a precious keepsake. It wasn't just pictures that can't be replaced. That was who they were. This missionary was living in Damascus, and, uh, and they was riding a cab, and the cabbie asked them, oh, you're obviously not from here. Do you have people here? And, and the man replied, well, you know, my wife and my kids are here. I've, I've got my families here. And the cabbie paused for a minute and got really quiet and then said, 
you don't have any people here? Oh, my, my family's not. My family's here. Your family's not here. Another experience, this was in Iran, different cabbie. The same man was with uh, his spouse beginning to do some mission work there. And the cabbie asked them, oh, so are you married? Yes, I've been married. Do you have any children? No, no, we've only been married three years. The cabbie got really quiet, leaned over and pulled a card out of the, the, the glove box and handed it to them and said, my wife and I had trouble having children too. Here's a doctor in Tehran that can help you, a fertility doctor. And the Westerner thought to, my, thought to themselves, it's only been three years, man. I'm, I'm not ready for kids yet. But in, in the Eastern mindset, especially the Mideastern mindset, there's no point in getting married at all unless you're going to have children. And there was no reason to leave your family unless you're ready to make that step. And so there was this cultural kind of conflict that came up when they couldn't imagine a couple that gets married and doesn't have children yet. Whereas in the West, in America, like, that's pretty normal. That's just what you kind of do. But it speaks to the difference of values, about the expectation of what family really means. So we turn to Abraham and Sarah. This is the story in Genesis. This story follows the story of of Babylon, right? Like there's disordered chaos that gets organized to revolt against God. And so God scatters through language the organized chaos, the organized rebellion, and instead creates a different kind of organized change through Abraham, through this people, through this family. I'm going to show the world who I am. This family is going to know. This family is going to be priests to the rest of the world so that when people look on this tower, the Babylonians wanted to see who they are, I instead am going to raise this people, this family, so that the world can know who God is. And it's a big ask. Abram is asked to leave his homeland, asked to leave his family. Remember, when you go to someplace in the Mideast and you don't have people there, you are alone. But he also has no children. And we might hear in that moment, it's just the two of them, but that's not the case. You might just think, okay, it's Abraham and Sarah. They're going off on their own. They're going to go to this place. But we know that Lot was there, which may mean unmentioned brothers and sisters of Abraham. We also include the slaves and the herdsmen. They're all part of Abraham's family. There's a mention that Abraham has 380 fighting men, men that are trained to fight. So this isn't just Abraham and Sarah loading up their trailer and going off by themselves. This is a small village going all together. But all of that does not matter because they don't have kids. Last week, we looked at the disruption of birthright. When Jacob seems to indicate that the birthright is going to go to Joseph, instead of the Benjamin like it's supposed to, it totally throws that family into chaos. But this week is a little bit different. Can you imagine having no heir at all? That puts power up to grabs for anyone for the taking that wants to grab it. The the, the only thing that Abraham can do is, is, is adopt his number one servant. And that's effectively Abraham's choice. It's, a, it's adoption. And it's fascinating to read how this happens in the ancient Near East or in the first century. More often than not, being adopted is, in this time is, is as an adult. 
People didn't adopt babies. They adopted adults because they needed to stop the chaos of wealth transfer. They needed to stop the chaos of what Abraham's about to experience if he doesn't have a child. They needed somebody to run the family's estate to provide an heir. And what you don't pick up in this encounter, which is fascinating to me, is how Sarah is perceived. Have you ever read this story from the point of view of Sarah and what she does? I think I've told this story here before, but I want to tell you again. In the, in the, in the story of the prodigal, if you ask people from Africa or Asia or the Americas, why, why does the son end up eating with the pigs? It's fascinating the difference of answer. Most of us in the West, if, if you ask that question, why did, why did the prodigal end up there? It's because he was wasteful, right? He blew his money on parties and all sorts of things, and he ran out of money, so he had to, be, he had to get a job. But if you ask that same question in Africa, the reason why he ends up there is because he doesn't have any people. He moved to a foreign place where nobody knows him, and he, he ends up in poverty because he doesn't have anybody to protect him. But if you ask that same question in Asia, why, why is the prodigal in, in the state he's in? It's because there's a famine. And cultures that live through famines know and experience what that kind of shortage feels like. Now, the first time I read that, I'm going to confess to you, I went back to the text and looked it up because I didn't remember there was a famine even in the text. I was so myopic in my Western point of view, I skipped that because I just assumed I knew why he ended up there. It was because he was wasteful, because he wasn't working hard enough. It was because he wasn't budgeting well. Of course, I didn't see what was right in front of me. And so I want us to look at this text again because if you read this text from Eastern mind or from a collectivist mind, the one value that you're not really going to grab is the importance of hospitality. And then you kind of see who Sarah, what Sarah does. And someone that reads this from an Eastern point of view is going to tell you that Sarah is remarkably rude in this story. And in fact, she's kind of mean the whole way through. Remember what Abraham asked Sarah to do. The three visitors come in, and he says, quickly, go make some bread. And then look what happens. Abraham runs, he grabs to the herd, he took the calf, tender, good, uh, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to the parrot. Then he took the curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, set it before them, then he stood, them, uh, under, stood by them under the t- tree while they ate. What's not listed? The bread. Why isn't Sarah making the bread? Now, you can find some like reasonable, well, it's because bread takes longer to rise and yada yada. No, that's not what it is. And then the second thing, throw that slide back up real quick. And he, they said to him, where's your wife, Sarah? He said, there in the tent. Now, it sounds like she's kind of just hiding outside of the tent as these people are talking. But even in an American context, if you think about this, it seems a little rude. I know it's a little rude because I've done it, and my wife has said, that was a little rude. Because, <laughs> like, I'm an introvert, and friends will come over, and they'll want to talk, and they'll want to hang out, 
and I didn't ask them to come over. I didn't invite them. I was not prepared for this. So I say hello, and then I go to my room. And I come out a few hours later, and, uh, and I say, oh, they're gone? And when I say that, that's like a smile on my face, like, hey, they've left. Um, Sarah's not there. Have you ever noticed that before as you've read this text? Abraham asks her to make bread, but when he serves, there's no bread. They, I guess, ask where she is, and then she laughs at them. And then later in the story, if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, with Hagar, she is trying to solve a problem. There is no heir, and if there's not going to be an heir, there's going to be chaos. And so what she does is she tries to take the promise of God into her own hands to create an heir, but she ends up resenting that solution so much that she exiles Hagar and her son Ishmael to leave the camp. But really what she's doing is she's exiling them to die. And you might not catch that if you don't see this story from the collectivist point of view in the culture in which it was written because those things are so subtle it's hard to see them. But what we notice in this story is what God does. God in the story of Joseph works to bring reconciliation in Israel's family. The point of the story of Joseph is not to show the rags to riches climb of Joseph who starts at the bottom and ends up at the top, but how God will patiently work throughout a, a, a dysfunctional family to bring about peace so that he can bless the world through these people. That God works patiently to keep the promises that he makes that God adopts us as children through Christ. We see this in Romans 8. We are called joint heirs with Christ. Think a minute for what that means. In a situation like Abraham, where the promise is either I adopt my slave or my, everything I know gets torn apart, and these thousands of people that are with me all lose their hope and safety and livelihood because I can't have a kid, imagine that pressure. But in that moment, what God does is work to bring about a fruitful promise. And then in Jesus Christ, we sit beside the air. We share in the blessing that we have no right to have, but is given us through the faithfulness of Christ. God never drops a piece of that promise. Even when Abram and Sarai try to fix it on their own, God is faithful and blesses the outcome. God is going to remain faithful to you. But more importantly, God is going to remain faithful to us. This is a season where no one really knows what the future holds. You, you don't know. You can't tell. We thought we were done with this. I thought that a, a vaccine would make me safe enough that I could go into United without thinking twice. We don't know. What we do know is that God is going to remain faithful to us. That we do not have to worry about the future because the promises that God made are the promises that God keeps. And even if in your own anxiety and straining and stumbling and working to figure it out for yourself, God's going to bless that work. 
Even if we as a church make a bad decision or overact one way or underact in another way, God is going to be faithful. He is going to bless our work. This is a season and nobody really knows. But we don't have to be worried about the future. Even if you end up acting a little mean, God is still going to work out what God needs to do in this place and in our city and in the world. Thanks be to God. I have uh, one more announcement that I want to share with you before I offer a benediction. I want to remind you to keep your eye, if you're on Facebook, to find that story. It's at the very top. Click on it. Fill out that sentence, please. Um, Today, uh, we are announcing here and uh, in the Round Rock Church of Christ outside of Austin. uh, They're announcing the same thing. Um, Our associate preacher and university minister and it can't even begin to hold, name all the hats that Zane has wore. Zane Witcher has accepted the call to preach at the Round Rock Church of Christ. Um, the call to preach is a noble thing. And I'm not just saying that because I do it. The call to preach is a noble thing. And we are really going to miss Zane. He is gifted beyond measure. Uh, In the last two years, he has become a friend, and uh, I'm really going to miss him. But this also gives me hope. Let me tell you the reason why it gives me hope. It's because we did our job. Zane was 19 when he started on our staff um, here at Highland. And Jonathan Stormont and many others mentored him, walked beside him, allowed him the space to to be creative and make choices, and sometimes it went well. Most of the time it went well, frankly, was saying, but sometimes it didn't, and they protected him. And all of that mentoring and love and effort that we have poured into him, he's going to take all of that, and he's going to go bless another church. And then what we get to do, Highland, is hire someone else and do it all again. Is that fair? You bet it is. Ben Seibert served at a church for years before he came here. And we have received the fruit of that offering. I was blessed to be able to preach in California for many years before I came here. That church poured so much love into me. This act of raising up leaders and sending them out, that is the gospel put on flesh before us. And we praise God as it happens. Now, I'm really going to grieve his transition. I'm really going to grieve losing him as a, as, a, as a co-worker. But I praise God for the work of this church, for the faithfulness that we have to the mission of God. And Rand Rock, you don't know what you're getting. We know what you're getting, but you may not know what you're getting. You're getting an amazing minister. Um, And we're going to have time to celebrate Zane and Carolina and all of the work that they've done here at another date. We'll give you more information about when that comes up in the next few weeks. Would you please stand for our benediction?
May the God who is faithful in every way and in every sense of the word and in every place that you will go be with you this week. May God go before you. May God follow you in everywhere you go. Go in peace.